The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Do you think when all this is over, that the bonfire of next Easter Saturday will be of masks and we'll all find our ears are a half an inch further forward than they were before it all started? Are you having lots of reflections about when it's all over lately? I talked to a colleague this week. She had just gotten her first shot and I asked her what it felt like because I'm always curious how that moment feels for each person. She said to her it felt remarkably ordinary, strangely ordinary, just a shot, and momentous too. More than for herself though, what she was struck by, she said, has been the strange experience after every person in her life, in her church, gets a shot. She said, I feel like three pounds gets lifted from my shoulders with every vaccination I hear about. Three pounds. She and I agreed, three pounds that you don't realize you're carrying until they're lifted from your shoulders. It feels like a great metaphor for so much, I think, that's happening for us these days. A series of pounds lifted from our shoulders that we either didn't know we were carrying or didn't know how heavy it was to carry them because we've been holding them for so long. And with the lifting, there is the release and the joy and the freedom of movement, of body and spirit. We can laugh a little easier in that moment, begin to dream again. But there's also a strange heaviness that many have been feeling, me too. Like in the wake of all that unclenching, we can begin to feel how tired we are from all of it. It's like a bit more severe case of the cold that I always used to catch after finals, the one that made you realize just how much stress that run up to the end of the academic year was, how little sleep you were getting, how much stress your body was under. There's all that, and in our case, there is the dawning realization too, I think, of more of the scope of what we have lost a year. So there's some more mourning to do, and grief is exhausting. It's not quite a Good Friday world this year. Last year, Last year, it was more of one, all fear, all bracing, all landscapes of loss to look ahead to. This year, 
For those of you who know the Easter story, I might say it seems to me more like you and I were those exhausted disciples who are at the tomb of Jesus when the sun rises. The rock has been rolled back, but it isn't quite clear what it means yet. There is disbelief and the blinking of eyes, the stunned new reality that will take them and us time to discern and take in. Heck, they are still in their mourning cloth. And so are we. And maybe we are beginning to thaw, beginning to feel again, and maybe beginning to make sense of what we've been through for ourselves. Experts say these days that you and I, we need to give ourselves permission to have things feel fuzzy, for our brains to feel off, for us to be at a loss for words, and our emotions to feel sometimes strangely raw, other times completely shut down. In this time when we are unpacking the year and beginning to put it away. Things we have come to know. We're starting to make sense of them, I think. Some of that making sense for me has been around hope. The experience, the idea the challenges of it. Emily Dickinson, she wrote that poem that we heard a musical rendition of this morning right before Meg's time of prayer. That piece about hope, the title of the poem, it's the same as the first line of the poem. It has hope in quotes, like it's some pretend thing, some thing without reality, which is a bit how the poem starts, I think. It starts with, hope is the thing with feathers that perches on the soul. The poem starts with this metaphor of a bird implied that she'll later explicitly name. The poem starts with this thing called hope, being all light and airy and flitting and darting about. It starts out the way, that way, the poem, but it doesn't stay there. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches on the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard. And sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea. Yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. Hope, the poet implies, is a bit deceiving. It can seem all feathery and light, but it is fierce, too. Showing up in the hardest places, storms, bitter cold, strange and faraway places, when and where things are rough. It sings its tune into the gale winds for you to hear beyond them, within them, and the poet says it asks nothing of us. 
I think we've learned a little bit about hope this year. Liz Strand, who's a member of the church and a chaplain, among other things, she mentioned at a meeting not so long ago how she had read recently about the Stockdale paradox and how it was helping her. Named for Vice Admiral James Stockdale, sorry, the Stockdale paradox, if I said that right, who was a Vietnam veteran who was awarded the Medal of Honor for his duty who also spent, as many of you know, seven years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. The paradox named for him, it's the pithy summary of what helped him to survive the ordeal. Quote, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, he said, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. Stockdale would tease out more of what he meant in his description of it, how those who were imprisoned with him who were too optimistic at first, who were sure they would be home by Christmas or the first Easter, they were the ones, he said, who had the hardest time surviving the ordeal physically, spiritually. He said he never lost hope that he would come home. It wasn't ever that. But knowing what he did of war and the circumstances of that moment in time, he was less optimistic about the timeline of his liberation. And that, paradoxically, helped him to survive. It's an interesting lesson, isn't it? How hope and faith in a hope can actually be hard on us emotionally and spiritually if it's not grounded in reality. Because if it's not, then it's dashed again and again on the shoals of a false optimism. I think we who've been through the last year, we, we know that feeling. Liz named it for the power of it for her during these times. I think we all learned how to be temperedly optimistic, to stoke the fires of hope, but not too hot, not anchored in too quick a fix, to get used to the slow burn of hope that we kept alive in us until a day we knew when a vaccine would, cope, would come, trusting that it would come, but not anchored to exactly when. And even now, if you are at all where I am, your current hope is tempered about when we will completely pull out of all of this. Not that we will, but when. Because we know how sly and cruel viruses can be. How much they too are pulled forward by a life force. And this one hasn't entirely waved the white flag. Hope has been, is vital to our long-term health through this. But a patient and a pragmatic hope for sure. 
we've learned a lot about hope. I think we've also learned that hope may involve some cooperation to give it a chance. When Dickinson wrote, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me, I think she meant hope that spark that's lit within is given as a gift, as a grace, you might say. And though nothing is asked for it in that moment, I would definitely say that the wisdom of this time has been that something is often asked of us to make it real, to make real on hope's promise, or as my husband sagely puts it, hope, Vanessa, is not a strategy. We learned that for sure this year. Our hope of making it through the pandemic alive required a lot of strategies and committed actions toward them. Our hope of staying connected to one another as a community, as a church, it required enormous learning curves and elbow grease too. Our hope that none would be left to struggle unnecessarily required improvising phone trees and raising money to help those we knew with rent and other needs and volunteering at improvised outdoor food banks and connecting with and supporting those groups as we are doing even today, groups that we knew were getting help where it was needed in the city, where it was needed most. Hope. When it's given, it doesn't require a strategy of us. But strategy helps us make good on it. We've learned a lot about hope this year. We have seen and felt this year how Sweet it is to hear that song of hope in the gale winds and storm. How important it is to learn to temper false optimism, but be able still reasonably to keep hope, honest hope, alive. How we could put our heads down and learn new habits and walk through the hard holy weeks, if you will, of the journey of our lives, full of loss and hardships and disappointment and fear. If we knew, if we had hoped that there was some Easter dawn waiting for us, and we did all that. And so not surprising that this Easter morning, in this dawning Easter time, we are blinking a bit in disbelief at where we may find ourselves right now. That maybe the storm is going to end as we'd hoped. We have lived as good an argument as can be made for the hope that is as tenacious as the dandelions we read about in the poem this morning. Insisting on its place in the order of things and refusing to be mowed down by circumstances. And we have learned as clearly as one could be taught the central importance of our need to be partners in that hope wherever it is asking to be alive in the world, right? Wherever, because we have seen the power and the beauty and the necessity of it. 
But I would be remiss if I didn't say one more thing I think we have learned about hope this year. And that's this. You and I, we have seen how some bad luck or the unequal distribution of rights and privileges, especially when it shows up in life circumstances, job circumstances, a birth that bears the real life disadvantages of inherited disenfranchisement, and there are those things. And where all of those disadvantages show up most predictably connected, as they so often do to race or immigration status or tied to a host of human prejudices and sins. How all of that can make, could make the right to hope an insistence on hope a cruel venture for some. How certain inequities in our world made good strategizing not possible or not nearly enough to make hope, reasonable hope, possible for many. Fourteen people in a small apartment living that way, necessitated by poverty, a density that also meant that those who left to take their low-paying jobs essential to our survival, but not essential enough that we would protect them from infection while they were doing them, that those people would inevitably, unavoidably, come sick with a virus, and come home to an apartment where quarantining was impossible, and so death was impossible, too. In that apartment, hope is a battered song at best, but it needn't be. It needn't have been. We learned this year, again, the fierce power of hope to carry us through the storms of life, but it's the power of real hope, hope with wings and possibilities that carried us through. And so maybe, maybe what we can see now in a particularly clear way is that hope, real hope, is a right that we all have a right to it and certain hopes in particular the human hope for some life that is abundant in the largest sense but when we come down to brass tacks that means a fair chance to survive to succeed, to be free of fear, to have health care, to have a grounding education, to be safe in your neighborhood, to not be targeted on the streets and beaten for how you look, and let's be clear, for your race. And so much more, the right to food on your table and work that is safe to go to.
that tenacious hope that we love, it's a right, and it's our work then to strategize together as a nation, as a world, for how to make that hope real. We've learned a lot about hope this year. Because some of our neighbors, they will meet this Easter, the rising sun with hearts that are not so easily healed. And together we could have stopped the carnage, but it wasn't a band-aid fix to do so, and it won't be one to do so. It will require the soul fix of a nation. And the truth is, I'm not really sure whether the Easter story, the way it's told, is maybe a little bit misleading. I'm not sure resurrection is inevitable. I think it's still a choice we have to make to partner with it. I think resurrection is a strategy for keeping hope alive, our commitment to it. And for that clarity of purpose this day, for a recommitment to that work after this year in this world, after all we have been through and still face for all of that, for that I will sing alleluias this Easter day. I love you all. Happy Easter. Blessings to us all. The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org.